0: So today we're, uh, we're in right in between major series, so I'm going to be preaching just one sermon uh, as we get ready for next week. I'm going to preach out of uh, Galatians chapter 3, and if you were here last week, we had preached on uh, the parable, we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan and what that taught us, it taught us Jesus was using that parable to teach uh, this this person who, uh, to teach this person the real meaning of the law, that the law was really to expose us of our own sin so that we might run to Jesus and his righteousness, and so what even though this is a completely different part of the bible what you 're going to hear today is pretty much the same thing, and I did it on purpose uh, I, I picked these two passages on purpose, number one to show and to point out that this, this is the major theme of the Bible. This isn't something that we're just pulling out uh, of specialized places. Just like Jesus used, Jesus used a story. He used the story of the good Samaritan to bring out this truth for us to see. And today in this passage, Paul uh, is going to use clear theological teaching to make the same point. In other words, we're going to see today that Jesus and Paul are teaching the same thing, but in different ways. And the second reason I wanted to do this passage was uh, because next week, next week is the beginning of Lent, and Lent is a time in the church traditionally where we've reflected. The church has reflected, uh, reflected on our sin and reflected on our condition in preparation for Easter. I'm not talking about, and there are certain churches that have taken that like way too far and have required their people to undergo these rituals, right? So we're not talking about that. But it is, we can stand with the universal church uh, during this time and reflect on our condition. And so next week, we're going to start five weeks during the season of Lent leading up to Easter in the book of Lamentations, a series called Songs of Lament. (laughs) So before we plunge into that, I wanted to give everybody a big old double-dose shot of gospel before we go into songs of lamentation. So let's look at, let's look at that today. I'm going to read from uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 29. And, and there's so much debate in the church about what, what's the purpose of the law. But actually, we know. Paul says real clear, why is the law given? He's going to tell us. Let's listen. Or please stand if you are able to. And let's listen uh, out of respect for the, uh, for the reading of God's word. Why then the law? so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. one of the most tragic events in World War II and a war full of tragic events but a story uh, that I had heard a long time ago that's always stuck with me just because of the that's the human tragedy and, and drama of it is uh, there was a crew there was a, a crew of a B-24 Liberator a bomber that took off from the Libyan coast of Africa in 1943 to make a bombing run on Naples, Italy uh, plane was the, 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 the bomber was named the Lady Be Good they all would name their planes back then uh, and when the when the plane took off there was a sandstorm and so the plane was separated from the rest of the group right at the, right at the beginning and they went and completed the bomb run by themselves on the way back there was a there was a strong tailwind which confused the instruments and it was confused the it confused the, the inexperienced navigator this was their first mission <laughs> And because of that, they were unaware of where they were. They were actually traveling much faster and much farther than they thought they were. The sandstorm had also obliterated the coastline, so they couldn't see where the water ended and where the, where the land began. And so when they started to wonder where they were, they felt like they should have already hit land. They called, they radioed in, but because of the technology of the day, they couldn't, dis- they couldn't discern whether the plane was coming towards them or going away. They could only discern the distance. And since everybody assumed that they were still over the water, the tower uh, instructed them to continue going in the direction they were going, which they did for two more hours until they ran out of fuel. And they all bailed out uh, thinking that they were over the water so they didn't really bring much water with them. Uh, and then so by their surprise, they landed on dry land in the middle of the desert and thinking uh, that they must have just gone a little a little ways, they decided they would just pack up their stuff and make a quick march northwest back to the base on the coast of Libya and everything would be fine. But what they didn't know was that they had traveled 440 miles into the probably the worst desert on the face of the earth. 440 miles into searing, uh, un- inhospitable... Desert. And they had no idea where they were. They totally misunderstood the reality surrounding them. They thought they were just walking home, but when the reality they were engaging in a death march across 440 miles of open desert. Uh, they had no idea the gravity of their situation, and so they attempted a way of salvation that was absolutely impossible. Now that story... It almost perfectly illustrates what Paul is trying to teach, the essence of what Paul is trying to teach, what he's saying to the Galatian church, especially in this chapter. He is preaching. He's written this letter to a church that he had brought the gospel to. He said, you're saved by Jesus. And because of that, you're free to obey the law as an act of worship. But then after he left, these other guys came in and said, oh, no, no, first you must obey the law. You must be circumcised. You must become a Jew. You must do this, this, this. Check off all these boxes. And once that's done, then, and only then, can you be a Christian. And so Paul is saying, that's insane. You can't do that. It's an impossibility. And so the main thing that Paul is trying to teach in this passage is that anyone who's attempting to be saved by their own works is in the same hopeless position as the crew of the Lady Be Good they're misunderstanding reality Uh, they have no idea where they truly are morally and they have no idea the gravity of their situation and because of that they are attempting a way of salvation which is impossible namely keeping all the rules so that we can make ourselves presentable to God and that's not true but if it is true then what's the purpose of the law? Why why did God even give the law then? a lot of people ask that question why do we have the law? Uh, if it was never intended to be the way of salvation, what then was the purpose of the law? Super important question that we answer and answer correctly. And one that Paul answers in this passage. He says, why then the law? And he gives three reasons. First, he says the law reveals the real problem. Second, the law reveals the real solution. And third, through that, the law then reveals to us our true identity. So let's look at that one part at a time. First, the law reveals the real problem. Let's look at, look at verse 21 and 22 again. He says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures have imprisoned everything under sin. Imprisoned everything under sin, what does that mean? What could that possibly mean? when I was in bible college i worked uh, I had a job painting cars that I worked my way through bible college in it wasn 't just regular cars it wasn 't a collision shop I worked in a i got somehow I got a job working uh, in a shop that did complete restorations of Lamborghini supercars for car shows and we did we did a kind of, of uh, we did a kind of, of refinishing called concours refinishing, which would we uh, we wouldn't paint like flames on the Lamborghinis. but we would we would we would bring them we would bring them back to their uh, we would paint them according to the original paint schemes, but we would make them f- perfect, as perfect as we possibly could, way better than they ever were when they rolled off the factory floor. All every line on the car, every surface was completely flat, mirror. Mirror finish, so you would see complete, you know perfect images of yourself in the paintwork. Everything about these cars was as absolutely perfect as human beings could make them. We spent thousands of hours restoring these cars. People paid eighty to hundred thousand dollars for this paint job. That'll give you an idea of how perfect it was. And we also would do once in a while. We'd do street cars, people cars that people would drive around on the street, um, and. Those cars were nice, but they didn't compare to, they didn't compare at all to the show cars that we, that we did. If you had a street car, if you had a nice Lamborghini street car, you would say, man, this is, you would see it on the street and you'd be like, wow. And you, we do see them on the street and you say, that's an amazing car. Right up to the point where if you were to take that car and drive it onto the lawn of the car show and park it right next to the perfectly refinished Lamborghini. And then all of a sudden, that amazing Lamborghini streetcar would take on a whole different vibe. You would see all the wavy lines in the panel. You would see the little dents, the chips in the paint. You would see all, you would see in, in, in contrast to the perfection, you would see all the imperfections of the car just coming out. And that's what Paul says the law does. That's what it means for everything to be imprisoned under the law. It shows us in the the light of perfection how imperfect we truly are. But he actually says it's worse than that. It's not just that that the law does. He also says that the law was added because of transgression. Now if you just look at that, and you just read it over quick, you'd be like, "Well, that well, I get what that means. It means because we're sinners, God gave us the law so we would see the law and then obey it, and not be sinners anymore, right?" Sounds reasonable, but that's not what the, that's not what it means. The word the, the word because there really means uh, uh, for the purpose of. It's not, or with the intention of. A better translation of that is not that the law was given to limit transgressions, it says the law was given for the purpose of transgressions. Paul says the same thing in Romans 5, but he gives, it more, he gives uh, some more clarity to it. In Romans 5, Paul says, now the law came in order to increase the trespass. What could that mean? How could the law increase our trespasses? If you read that at face value, it just seems ridiculous, right? Like, how? It's just so contrary to how we think about the law. How could the law possibly increase trespass? And it does it two ways. The first thing is by knowing the law, uh, by knowing what the law says, knowing what God says is good and evil makes us culpable to that so that uh, it becomes an actual transgression of a known law of God. Prior to knowing the law, there's still sin. What we do, the sin that we do is still in violation of God's law, but it's not known to us. And so when the law is known to us, when God says, Paul says in in Romans, he says, uh, you know, before the law came, I didn't know the law, so I was coveting my heart's desire. I was just lusting after things left and right. But when the law came and told me that it was bad, now I knew it was bad. So when I did it after knowing it was bad, then it becomes a transgression. So the law, the first way it increases transgression is by letting us know what our sin is. But it gets worse. Not only that, Paul says in addition to making our sin, making a violation of God's law known to us so that we become responsible for what we know, it also increases it uh, in the sense that the law Our knowledge of the law, rather than making us want to obey it more, it actually provokes us into more transgression because of our fallen nature. There was a a hotel in Seattle on the waterfront, and they had a problem. There were some people that decided to fish off the balconies. One guest. So they just said, well, we need to stop this, and they posted signs in every room saying, please do not fish off the balcony. Right. Well, it had never occurred to people. (laughs) Oh, we could fish off the balcony. In order to stop the problem, they had to go back and take all the signs down (laughs) to get people to stop. That's kind of how the law works. Uh, And and it's not... I mean, maybe someone who's just an unbeliever, someone who's not trying to follow Christ or honor Christ with their lives, they may know something about the law and just, in spite, do it anyways... But he's talking about Christians too. What we tend to do more often than that is rationalize disobedience. We rationalize our disobedience so that we can tell ourselves we're really not transgressing the law. Paul says in this one statement, this one he makes in Romans chapter 7, he says, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, meaning the commandment becomes known to us and then our knowledge of that commandment is the opportunity that sin uses to, one, Uh, produce all manner of sin and two, to deceive us. And then through through our sin, then the law, he says, killed me, put me to death. What he's saying is when we're brought into face-to-face contact with how sinful our sin really is, Uh, the natural tendency of our mind is to be deceived or to deceive ourselves, to lower the law or to change what God's law really says or to pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we want and don't want or to in some way, shape, or form convince ourselves that God's word doesn't really say this. What it says is this, so that I can do what I really want to do. We're deceived by it the law provokes us to sin even more and because of that it kills us. Paul said, killed me. So you can see, you know, here's the point he's trying to make, Paul's trying to make is that if the law, if it imprisons us, if it increases our sin, if in the process of deceiving, of, of that process, we, it, it deceives us He's saying, he's saying it's not just that you are completely and utterly incapable of keeping the law right now, but he's saying you will never be able to keep it. And that's saying a different thing. It's not just that we are sinful now, but someday we're gonna get it together. And then our hope our hope is in some future golden age when we are in obedience to God's law and then our security will be in that. He's saying, no, no, no. There is no future golden age coming in this life when you will be obedient and therefore able to present yourself before God. There is no future golden age of obedience that you can hope put, set your hope on and set peace in your heart on. That will never happen. And because that's true, you have to set your hope and your peace on the only thing that can give it and that is in the forgiveness of Jesus that we have now that's the second second part that he brings out that the law reveals the real solution the law reveals the real solution guess how far they walked the crew of the lady be good how far did they make it they made it a hundred miles. Think about that. That's like walking to Los Angeles or walking to Northern Orange County or something, but with no water in the desert, searing Saharan desert. That was remarkable. Remarkable. They made it a hundred miles, but it was also meaningless because the goal was four hundred and forty miles didn't matter. And the tragedy of it was because they didn't know where they were, they went in the wrong direction. Had they known where they were, there was an oasis town to the south, 90 miles away. They would have totally made it. If they had only understood their true position, if they had only known the right direction to go in, they would have totally been saved. And the same thing with the law. The law tells us our real moral position, we are not just utterly incapable of keeping it now. We will utterly be incapable of keeping it the whole time we're in this body. And because of that, it points us in the right direction. It points us to the only solution, which is Jesus. So listen to, what the, listen to the solution that Paul gives for our imprisonment under sin. In verse 22 through 24, Paul says, But the Scripture has imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And he goes on to say, and now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Justified means right with God. Uh, When that says guardian, that's, That's a bad translation. Guardian means someone who like protects you. But really what it meant was a really mean. uh, uh, (laughs) It meant uh, a mean and uh, stern disciplinarian that was over the children of the wealthy. Who would really just beat them every time that they messed up. (laughs) And that's what the law does to us. Every time we mess up, the law just beats us down. And that beating down is to show us our moral position so that we look to the right solution, which is faith in Jesus. And so the only way to be really right with God is to be justified, to be made right with God by our faith. And what does that mean? I have one of my really good, close friend of mine, uh, a Muslim man that we're family friends with. He's one of the best men I know. Uh, Loves his family, works hard. Literally, would give you the shirt off his back and has uh, for us, and so we get together and smoke cigars and talk, and uh, and uh, we had uh, we've had some like some serious conversations about religion. One day, he was teaching me he was teaching me about the five pillars of Islam, the things that you must do in the Muslim faith in order to make it into heaven. So I asked him. He told me this whole like process of ramadan and 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 prayer five days you know prayer five days five times a day making a mecca uh, or a hajj to the mecca all these different things that he had to do and i looked at him i said so have you done that and he laughed he's like of course not (laughs) of course i haven't done that (laughs) like it was funny you know and i said so i asked him i said aren't you aren't you worried about that you just told me everything that you need to do in order to be right with God, and, but you've also just admitted to me that you don't do those things. Does that worry you? And he was like, uh, I don't know. Um, I said, someday, like it or not, you're going to stand before God in judgment and he is going to ask you about these things. What are you going to say? And it was, like he'd never, it was like he'd never even thought about that before. And then when he thought about it, he said, well, he, was, he assumed there'd be some sort of sliding scale. He said, well, Allah is merciful. I said, okay. What, I asked him a different question. What is and how, what will Allah base his forgiveness of you on? It's a different question. How will Allah forgive you? What will he base his forgiveness upon you on? Uh, the first question I asked him was there's, a, it was, there's a bunch of stuff that you are supposed to do that you haven't done, and who's going to cover that? And the second question is, there's a bunch of stuff that you weren't supposed to do that you've done. And you, Muslims, Muslims have a better understanding of the holiness and the absolute righteousness of God than we do. We, churchwide, are infected with uh, our view of God and His holiness uh, is, has been has been lowered because of a lot of factors. Muslims understand the absolute holiness of God. How does a holy and perfectly righteous God forgive sin without violating His own Holiness, righteousness. It's a very hard question to answer because if God is God, he must be just. He must be evenly just across the board. He must always do the right thing. If rebellion and sin exists in the world, which is destruction to his creation, which he loves and which is rebellion against him, then he must judge that sin. He has to. If he doesn't, he violates his own character, attribute of justice, justice, would fail to be God in any meaningful sense and Muslims really understand that and he didn't so I asked him how? how will Allah forgive your sin he had no idea so I have to ask my imam and he turns to me and he goes how do you think how do you think God forgives our sins? it so 's just like the golden ticket it 's the whole, the whole purpose of all these com- any kind of apologetic conversation. You want to get the guy to ask that question when he does it's oh, it 's like the holy spirit 's working. I was like, yes. So I told him, you know what we believe that Jesus did two things for us, that he was the incarnate God. Uh, he didn 't just die on the sins to pay, die on the cross to pay for our sins, but that Jesus came as a man was born lived as a man and perfectly kept all of the law. He never sinned. And so that his perfect righteousness, his perfect record before God is given to us as a gift. We get credit for every good thing for Jesus' perfect life and then when he, that which takes care of all the stuff that we were supposed to do that we didn't do. And then he went to the cross and died which covered the penalty for all of our sin, the stuff that we did that we weren't supposed to do so that God poured out his justice, his, the cosmic justice and the penalty of our sin on Jesus. So that, Paul says, God remains just. He still remains God. He has punished sin. Jesus has taken our place. And he can justify, he can make righteous. Anybody who believes that what Jesus did was that. That Jesus and his completed work is what makes us right before God and then I asked him I said so who do you think Jesus is and he held the party line he said he is a prophet and I looked him dead in the eye and I said "Then, Joe I said on the day of judgment when God looks at you you're going to be on your own And at first he laughed. (laughs) He's like, I can't believe you just said that to me. (laughs) But then he stopped laughing. And I knew that the law was doing its work because we both, our, our eyes, the tears in our eyes both welled up and we just looked at each other. And I could tell that for the first time in his life, this Muslim man was considering the real work of Jesus. What Jesus had done. The law had done its work. And opened his heart to see the necessity that we have. We must have someone to save us. And so we can never place our hope or our peace in some someday hope of righteousness. It never works. But we can place our hope and our peace in the today righteousness that we have in Jesus. And that's really the hope of the gospel. We're righteous. Now, no matter what you did this week, no matter what you're gonna do tomorrow morning, no matter what happens this next coming week, I mean, God will discipline us in those things because he loves us. But our righteousness, our rightness with God, our love, his love for us is already established because of Jesus. And because of that, we can have peace right now and our hope will not be disappointed. So what does that all mean for us? If that's all true, what does that mean for us right now? And it means, it means that through that process, the law is able to reveal to us our true identity. And that's what Paul talks about next, which is the best part of this whole passage. Look at verses twenty-nine through or 25 through 29. He says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise. three things he says they're true of us. He says that the guardian, the harsh disciplinarian the law that beat us down constantly with reminders of our failure, uh, we don't need that anymore because we are now have been given a whole new identity and a whole new reality in Jesus. First we are clothed, is the word with the righteousness of Jesus. When he says all of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The word "put on" really means clothed, put on as is as 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 like a robe or like new clothing. He's referring really back to Genesis, the very in chapter three, where Adam and Eve had sinned, and God came to them in the garden uh, and started meeting out curse punish, curse penalties because you have trusted in yourselves and your own righteousness and your own wisdom and rejected my righteousness and wisdom, now there's moral separation between us and these consequences will necessarily follow, pain, suffering, sweat of your brow. Uh, However, in the middle of all those curse punishments, he makes this crazy promise. He says, someday I'm going to undo all this and that one of your offspring One of your descendants, one of your great, 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 great grandkids is going to come and undo all this. He was going to crush the head of the serpent who just deceived you. And in that process of crushing the head of the serpent, he is going to be bruised. Uh, It's really the first mention of the gospel that someone else is going to war with Satan and sacrifice himself and put an end to the curse of the, of, that's upon us. Um, and then after that whole section, Adam, uh, in response to this, God, God, Adam looks at Eve and he names her. He names her the mother of all living, which is a crazy thing to say after all these curse sanctions are put out, which lets you know, lets us know he was focusing on that one promise because God had said when you eat you'll die but then he said actually you'll physically die you'll you have begun to die right now but I'm going to undo it when Adam looked at Eve and named her the mother of all living it was Adam saying he believed the promise that God had just made the theologians call that Adam's amen Salvation has always been by faith in the promise, and by Adam doing that, we know that he was trusting, he was believing that that would be true, and then God to reaffirm that truth to him, what does God do? He takes their fig leaves of their own works that they've tried to cover themselves in, and he slaughters an animal right in front of them, and he takes that animal skin, and he clothes them with it. In this symbolic picture, we don't understand it all right there in the very beginning of the Bible, but it gets filled out as we go along through the text. It's the very first picture that our righteousness, that our salvation will have to come by the death of someone else and that, that we will be clothed in the righteousness provided through that sacrifice. Paul is saying that same thing is true of us in our baptism. That's what it symbolizes. It's not our pledge of allegiance to God. Our baptism is God's representation that what has happened to us is that our sin has been paid for and that we are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We wear it like a robe. It's on us. It's not our own righteousness. But it's Jesus' righteousness so that when God looks at us, he sees us as holy and perfect and beloved. That changes. It changes our relationship with God. The second thing is that we transcend. Or really, really, uh, we transcend the identities and value of this world. He says we're no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female. If we were to like translate that into modern terms, he's talking about race, social status, uh, and sex. You could say that we're no longer black or white. We're no longer white collar or blue collar. We're no longer male or female. In other words, your ultimate identity is no longer in these earthly categories. It doesn't mean we stop being those things as long as we're still alive, but it does mean that we're not saved by them. It does mean that our value is not determined by them. It means that all those things are now earthly things, but the real reality, the truest reality of our identity is that we are united in Christ. We have union with him, and that is our ultimate truth. So that our value, status, salvation is ultimately based on the fact that we are united with Christ and that we can have real unity on earth as we await. And the third thing, biggest thing, is he says that we become the beneficiaries of the promises of God in the Old Testament. Old Testament's full of all these promises for the Jewish nation and the Jewish nation. The Jews at that time thought that must, that has to mean physical descendants of Abraham. Has to mean that. And Paul's saying, uh, and really the, the prophets, the whole tenor of the Old Testament saying that's really not true. Abraham was promised to be the father of many nations. How was that to happen? It wasn't by physical descent. In Jesus, God is creating an entirely new race of people who are bound together by spiritual bonds, by spiritual descent. We are, Christ is the head of our family tree and we are connected to him by the indwelling spirit. We've been pulled out of the family of Adam that's connected together by the blood and the transfer of unrighteousness and sin. Pulled out of that family and put into this whole new family tree with Jesus as our head so that that is now our family. That's who we are. Uh, and because of that, we are now descendants of Abraham. And as descendants of Abraham, all of those promises of the Old Testament are now our promises. They're true for us. God promised to make Abraham the father of many nations and we are now spiritual descendants of him. He promised Abraham, that he would inherit the land. And Paul in Romans 4 tells us that meant the earth, the new heavens and the new earth, Hebrews 11. Uh, Even Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 knew after he had sacrificed his son, he knew what that meant, that God was promising him a better reality, that God was promising him and all of his spiritual descendants that we would be, that we would inherit a whole new creation. And that we would also inherit the promise of the indwelling spirit, meaning that God would give us his spirit, making all these things true for us. So, wrapping this all up, this is one of the most important things that anyone can understand in religion. What's the difference between the law and the gospel? The biggest, one of, one of the biggest problems in the church and one of the things that causes the most harm to people is when we get those things confused and people think oh, the law is somehow part and parcel of being saved. But over and over again, it's taught differently. Jesus taught in the parable of the Good Samaritan. No, the law tells you who you really are. So you turn to Jesus Paul, in this section, lays it out theologically. The law breaks you down. The law shows you uh, that everything, that how sinful you really are. And rather than the law helping you to obey it, it actually provokes you to more sin and provokes you to deceive yourself about your own performance. And because that's true, the purpose of the law is to drive us to the real solution, which is to trust in the finished work of Christ And that and that alone makes us right with God. It changes everything. If you get just that one thing right, you'll be way ahead of the curve. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for the gospel, Lord. We thank you that your Bible is clear from beginning to end, that the law first shows us our true moral position, so that we might head in the right direction and we might trust in Jesus, Lord. So we pray that we would get that, Lord, every morning when we wake ourselves up and we remember the awful things that we've done and we would, our hearts try to tell us that that must mean that you don't love us. But the Bible says something so different. It says that you knew all about the awful things that we've done. It even says that you know all about the awful things that we haven't even done yet, we don't even know about but you do, and that because of that, because you know that we're weak, because you know that we are powerless, that's why you came, and that's why you went and suffered the penalty of death on our behalf, because you love us. So help us to see that, Lord, and as we understand more and more how much you love us, that that would create a space to want to worship you and that as we worship you by trying to be obedient, Lord, that we would be full of joy. So Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.